0: The Incomparable Number 376 October 2017
1: Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about a little bit of an unusual topic, but I think it's a really good one. We're going to be talking about an author of primarily children's books, uh, and I'm going to say it up front, books that I grew up with and loved. And and uh, who better to join me to talk about books from youth then the host of the sophomore list lit podcast on this very network john mccoy hello
0: hello you know james's parents were dead and gone in 35 seconds flat but we're stuck here talking about roll doll well yeah,
1: that's right it's roll doll james and the giant peach is my favorite book of childhood in fact i will say i am holding the book uh given to me in august of 1975 by my aunt um and I still have it, and it was my absolute favorite book as a child. And Of course, many other interesting books written by Roald Dahl that we're going to talk about. It's not just me and John though. Monty Ashley is here.
2: Hello. Hello, Jason.
3: And Brian Hamilton is also here. Hi, I'm excited to be here on podcast and do a Skype with you. Wait, strike that, reverse it.
1: The um <laughs> I should have introduced you as Bump went Monty and Bump went Brian, but that's how they kill <laughs> off the ants in James and the Giant Peach. Anyway. Thank you for not
3: killing us off this early in the podcast. <laughs> I was I was uh,
1: I was describing uh, some of the things that I love about James and the Giant Peach to my kids, who I read that book to um, when they were younger, and um, they looked at me really funny when I said I actually delight and have delighted my entire life in the fact that the mean uh, ants of James Trotter. Um, are horribly killed in the beginning of James and the Giant Peach, but I love it. I love that they're squashed to death by the Giant Peach as it rolls out of their garden, um, just as I am truly ho- really horrified by the depiction of James's parents as being eaten by
2: an angry
3: rhino, rhino. in the middle of the road. Because that image never left my head when I was a kid.
2: <laughs> you know, 35 seconds is actually kind of a long time if you're being killed by a rhino, I would imagine. I have to say the other thing that st- stuck with me, and it goes back to the
1: drawing in the book too, um, that every time I'm on a uh, like a, a high point that's near the ocean, I try to see if I can see that thin blue line at the horizon that represents the sea, because it's in James and the Giant Peach. That's how it's described. Is he's on the top of the hill and he can just see to the seashore as the little blue line off on the horizon. Um, what I'm saying is it made a it made a huge impact on me. I did read. Anew. And on the ants and oh oh boy I have I have so many questions about James and the Giant Peach this is not a James and the Giant Peach podcast and by the way for people who are thinking that we're going to talk about the movie I don't think we are um, and I will say the movie of James and the Giant Peach is one of those examples I think rare in my life where my childhood connection to the source material is so strong that I have a hard time watching an adaptation of it. Like I was so excited to go see a James and the Giant Peach movie and I didn't like it because it wasn't the movie that I made in my own brain when I was six, seven years old. So I don't know what to say. It wasn't stop motion when I when I imagined it too. there's that.
0: Now your your book is the one with the original Nancy Eckholm Burkett uh illustrations, right? The Absolutely. Right, those are those are so indelibly uh, in my mind as well that that when you look at the the newer editions that have Lane Smith or that have uh, Quentin Blake, those are both great illustrators, but they just don't. You know, they, something imprints on your mind very early when you're a child and you read a book, and that becomes the 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 I, ideal for you and i think uh, i i have a very hard time looking at modern editions of james and the giant peach
1: yeah those illustrations are indelible to me um the the depiction of ant sponge and ant spiker james with his big um kind of black holes for eyes like he's <laughs> just sad <laughs> forlorn kid and then the thing that always gets me, one of my many questions about James and the Giant Peach is the, the whole plot is set off by this weird guy, weird bald guy with a pointy nose giving him a bag full of magic things, <laughs>
2: magic beans or something. And he's supposed Crocodile to...
1: Crocodile Yeah, and he's supposed to drink
2: them. <laughs> and I love how little of a character that guy is. Like, in order to get this story going where it's supposed to be... What we need to do is kill off some parents, have some evil ants, get rid of the ants because we're done, and also have somebody with incredible magic stuff that he doesn't care about at all. And... Rolled doll is just so happy to bring on a guy with magic stuff, throw him at the hero, and then leave. Well, like
3: the ants dying, it's something that you don't really think about much until you're, I guess, our age, uh, and you think, wait a minute, this children's book killed off four characters in the first three pages, and he's taking what may or may not be drugs from an old what? man. Like <laughs> It's the most bizarre thing that you, you don't actually think oh. about until you're much older.
0: Not only are the ants killed off, but then later we are supposed d- to delight in the fact that the centipede is it, telling po- poetry and, and writing songs about their death. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we, we exult <laughs> in their death. You know, we are supposed to luxuriate like, in their death.
1: Well, they are really mean. they are yes they are they are they are cruel but i always i've always wondered since i was a kid was like what would have happened to james if he had if he had had drunk the the magic potion out of the paper bag instead of having spilled it and having it go into the uh the peach and the the bugs and all that does he become like a superhero or something or or but we you know don't ask because that didn't happen instead we get a giant peach and a bunch of
2: giant bugs it clearly has effects besides just making you giant, because it gave all the bugs, you know, the ability to speak English and clothes and certainly shoes and be British, extremely British. <laughs> they were British already.
1: Yes, that's true, but they were not. They were just British bugs, and then they're they're more like uh, British people. Except, I I don't know. It's magic, and that that's great. But I, I did have that motion that that notion of like what what would have happened if James had had taken the 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 bag paper bag full of magic things I don't know I don't know I I um it's this is not just about James and the Giant Peach but since we're talking about it uh I, let's start there let me let me go back to my beloved uh, my beloved copy with those amazing illustrations in it it is I mean one of the things about Roald Dahl in general is that he his stuff is fantastical but also has this weird kind of cr- almost almost uh creepy or dark there's always darkness in there and um i think that's one of the notable things about him as a writer and in james and the giant peach not only are there the awful ants who it it, that's a classic fairy tale kind of story um that that you there's a kid with these terrible you know the it's the wicked stepmother essentially instead it's two two ants but the um but there's stuff later on like not only is there the horror he has this horror of seeing insects blown up to human size which makes sense that would be terrifying until you meet them and find out that they're actually very nice except for maybe one and uh <laughs> uh, then there's the um, and the thing that' stuck with me uh, even to adulthood is there's the scenes where they're floating because they capture seagulls right thousands of seagulls and use them to float Um and then they go into a cloud, and there's people, there's cloud men who live in the clouds, and they're like painting rainbows and things. And they get really mad at them, and they try to destroy them. And oh my god, I was terrified of cloud men for years. All oh, Jason, and they're up there, they're up there. I'd go on, a, even even on a on a flight on a plane, I'd be like, there are cloud men out there. Let's look down and see if there are any cloud men out there.
2: It's true. There's there's a line right towards the beginning of James the Giant Peach that goes. Something is about to happen, he told himself. Something peculiar is about to happen at any moment. And I love that line because it's... First, it sets the scene for a great sort of tension where you know something's about to happen, you don't know what. But also, at any moment, you could say that in a doll book. Anytime you could turn the page, something peculiar and new is about to happen. I wonder if those characters know they're in a
3: doll book. I I feel like that would add a lot of...
2: (laughs) I think Willy Wonka
3: does.
1: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. So I think most famously, people would know Roald Dahl from writing uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which became, uh, well, it's been two movies now. It's been Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I guess. But um, the uh, that's that's the most famous depiction of of Roald Dahl stuff, and it is it is a super weird book too, with with Charlie Bucket and his. I mean. Well another thing about Roald Dahl is that and, and a lot of children's fiction is like this. all the characters are super exaggerated, like his his grand he lives with his grandparents, um but they're and not his parents
2: by the way, yeah and his he parents. Has actual parents
1: okay, all right, he's not an orphan um uh, but the I'm exaggeration is the grandparents something. live in bed. <laughs> They just stay in bed. They don't leave the bed. They're not just infirm. They're literally they never leave their beds, and that's how that story starts. It's super strange. And then all the people he meets at the chocolate factory, not just Willy Wonka and the Oompa Loompas, and we have to talk about them a little bit more. Um, but all of the other kids who are there are these wild, you know, bright, exaggerated characters um, in the of of char- of character flaws, basically.
2: I I want to take issue with that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Roald Dahl just hates kids. Yeah, he does. All the characters in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory keep saying how horrible and disgusting these children are. (laughs) And, I mean, you've got a guy who owns a chocolate factory, who makes, it says here, invisible chocolate for eating in class. Where does he get off being mad at a kid for liking chocolate? In fact, we're told <laughs> Charlie <laughs> likes chocolate more than anything. He'd be Augustus Gloop if he had the money. Well, hmm. could,
0: could I? I'd like to address this a little bit here because right. I think it's it's important to remember that Dahl's favorite author was Charles Dickens, and Charles <laughs> Dickens, <I>, <laughs> Charles Dickens, and like you can really see it in the opening of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He wants to write about the poor innocent who's suffering and he makes Charlie suffer more in this book than I think he makes any character. I've read all of Dahl's books and this is like the longest book to get to the point in a way it's, we, we get to see Charles, we get to see Charlie, uh, starve based basically for about what? Like eight, eight to 10, uh, chapters. Mm-hmm. And it's only like halfway through the book that they finally make it to the chocolate factory. And I think, What's happening in, in in uh Dahl is you see this you see both him looking back at these Victorian models that he loves so well of 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 uh innocent sentimental stories of, of children who are virtuous and who are being oppressed and who then get their just rewards in the end. But then you see it kind of crossing over into this post-war Britain where there's a kind of the burgeoning kind of jet set mod society going on. And there's kind of this craziness, uh, zany z- zaniness in all the characters. And um, I, I guess I get that feeling more when I read uh, his adult books. And it's interesting to know that to note that Dahl was really good friends with Ian Fleming. They were both, uh, huh. They were both in uh, British the British Secret Service together, and they were both. Uh, and, and Dahl wrote the screenplays for a James Bond movie as well as for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So he he. It's interesting to know that they both were crazy ex intelligence <laughs> officers who wrote books for adults and children and the books that they wrote for adults were very adult books and the books they wrote for children were very wacky.
3: And they're still pretty adult at times.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Going back to uh, Rawl Dahl hating kids. He, he <laughs> only cares. About, clearly. He only cares about writing about kids that have been put through the ringer to him. The only good kids are people that have, you know, terrible abusive parents or no parents at all and terrible abusive aunts. And th- th- they need to be given something really interesting, really interesting, like a giant peach or a chocolate factory, to do in order to have an arc. They can't just become regular people, because there's there's this, like, modern sensibility that he's uh, railing out against, in uh, you know, Augusta Sloop and Mike TV, he's angry at all the other little kids and all the things that, uh, you know, they would normally do, so I really appreciate that, you know, we can look at these characters, I, I for for this show, I read Matilda, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and James and the Giant Peach, and all three protagonists are apparently angels because of all the terrible things that they've been going
2: through. Well, I think it's interesting that um, the book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory makes a big deal out of Wonka's competitors, including a guy named Fickle Gruber, which is (laughs) a little on the nose, but you don't get the thing in the movie where Charlie has the moment that he proves he's good. In the book, as soon as the other kids are gone, Wonka says, Well, you're the last one, you win. (laughs) He doesn't know if Charlie has a huge flaw. It just, whatever that flaw was, it comes after all the other ones. It's like the, it's the marshmallow test, right? He waited the longest, and yeah. so he wins.
0: <laughs> well, could could I? I'd, I'd like to give a, a, an alternate take that was given to me by Phil Gonzalez, who does uh, my Click Clickitcast podcast with me. He, uh, Phil has this theory that Wonka chose. Every single kid who won a golden ticket, he arranged it all, and it was going to be a contest of five kids who had a quality that he uh, admired in some way, that that, that uh, Augustus Gloop was a gourmand, that Violet Beauregard had uh, a, a lot— of, was was self-centered and had a lot of drive that the and and that charlie was obedient and it was going to be a contest to see which of of these virtues won out and i I don't know what i think about this but (laughs) it it does it does color you know it doesn't it doesn't actually beggar belief that wonka might have carefully manipulated who got these tickets in the first place
2: oh yeah he's explicitly i think a huge hypocrite in the book uh, there's one, there's, just to take one of many examples that happens in Chocolate Factory and the sequel, the G- Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, which, by the way, I read a million times as a kid. So I think of it as just as important to work, even if no one else has ever read it. For Mrs. Canids, Monty. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so in the first one. Mike TV eventually has had it with Willie's constant moralizing and says, "If you think gum is so disgusting," asked Mike TV, "why do you make it in your factory?" Which <laughs> is a great question, and the answer is mumble. I, I do wish you wouldn't mumble," said Mister Wonka. "I can't, can't hear a word you're saying. Come on, off we go. Hurry up. Follow me." And throughout both of the books, people are constantly calling him on his wild lies or nonsense. Uh, in the second book. He's basically trying to teach the other grandparents to get out of bed and take a more active role in life, or something. <laughs> but they're asking good questions. Like the the elevator flies up into space and bothers a space hotel and almost gets bombed. And one of them asks, "What's keeping this elevator up?" And he says, "Sky hooks." And they say, "So one end of the hook is attached to the elevator. Yes. What's the other end attached to?" And he just refuses to answer, which I like. Doll. Calling out the parts that don't make sense, either in his character motivations or the plot. Having a character who he claims knows all the answers and just refuses to tell anybody. The process of making the problem foreground and also not explaining anything, I think, is very... Antagonistic to the reader, but in a way I really
3: enjoy. I would argue that in terms of James and the Giant Peach, where there is none of that, but I would argue just as wacky things happen. Uh, that is just a fun quirk of uh, Willy Wonka that he gets mm-hmm. to have. You know, this wild, uh, this wild character that gets to be the uh, you know the front runner of everything that uh, advances all the plots in both uh, Chocolate Factory and Great Glass Elevator, and just kind of play around with them. You know, oh, we uh, we make gum. Wait, why? I thought you hate. Gum. I'm moving right along, like those kinds of moments don't need to be in an escapist child's book about a kid that winds up winning a chocolate factory. That's just there for us to laugh at.
2: Well, it's true that James and the Giant Peach goes out of its way to explain things sometimes. Like He spends almost a page explaining why sharks couldn't really eat a huge giant yep. peach from below, it's which out, I, I really angels. enjoy because yep. there's no reason for that to be there at all. <laughs>
0: Well, that's the chatty narrator. That's the kind yeah. of, the, the narrator that's a, a Victorian narrator who, but, but I think that does serve a purpose because I think all of Dahl's books have this transgressive element to them. They have, they, they, they pose ideas that are dangerous to kids. I, you, you mentioned in the great glass elevator when, uh, Wonka is trying to get the, uh, The grandparents out of bed, there was a a line that shocked me as a kid where Willy Wonka is talking about how you have to give so much of the medicine that's going to turn them young again and you have to give it all at one dose and he says, it's like taking an aspirin you can't just take, when you have a bad headache, you can't just take two you have to take four and then you'll be better, better and it's like as a kid, I knew this was bad advice, <laughs> but but, but Doll was there giving it to me as as a as a grown up as as the writer of this book. And in the book, um, Danny the Champion of the World, which is my yeah. personal favorite, uh, Doll, we are invited as readers to sympathize with people who are criminals, basically, yeah. and to and to and to take that on faith that sometimes the the world. Is wrong. The rules of the world are wrong, and and you have to make these decisions for yourself.
2: You got to go out and drug some pheasants. I had
0: th- <laughs> so I had I
2: had thought I had not read Danny
1: the Champion of the World, and then as I reread it for this podcast, I th- I discovered to myself not only had I read it, it is where <laughs> I learned both the word uh, poaching and what a pheasant was so i absolutely <laughs> did read it and it's a, it's funny because it's not fantastical right i mean not really it is about a kid who only ha- he has a single parent and they live in a in a in a gypsy caravan that is ha- up on blocks and they run a filling station and the the kid the kid is learning to be a mechanic but you know it's set in a uh you know in a real ish kind of world and uh and they uh yes, and it is the romantic uh life of people who sneak onto other people's property and uh steal their game good times but i mean that as a non English person I look at that and i think there's got to be a very uh strong class element that is harder to understand, especially as a kid. In the United States maybe than than as people in England about how there 's a rich man who owns all the land, and then the the relatively poor people go and 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 steal his pheasants so that he can eat
0: class is so weird and dull though because in that book he really takes the gentry to task as this kind of idle group of upper class twits. but when you read Matilda he is so on board with royalty. He loves the queen so much and she's presented as just a, 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 you know, an obvious, uh, paragon of virtue. And, and, and we, I think that when you read one doll book, you get the sense that here we have this, uh, Tory who who I mean I know that Dahl when Dahl was an intelligence officer he reported directly to uh Winston Churchill he must have been fairly conservative in his views but um but yeah in in Danny the champion of the world he really hates those those uh <laughs> Lord landholders that's really
1: yeah, that's. I, I thought Danny was a a sweet book. I I think as a kid I didn't appreciate it, which is why I didn't remember it. But as an adult, you know, I kept waiting for the spectacularly weird thing to happen, and it it never really does. I mean, as weird as it gets, is that Danny comes up with a better idea to poach pheasants than his dad has had, and they put it into account. And uh, you know, they they drug, they put sleeping powder into, um, into raisins. And pheasants love raisins. I guess pheasants love raisins. And, pheas- I, <laughs> love raisins and uh, the I read ra- it in a book once. <laughs> and the, fe- the pheasants all fall out of the trees asleep, and then later they wake up, and there's and wackiness ex- ensues when they wake up. But that's that's literally like that's all that happens in that book there is that That was the other thing that struck me is so many of Dahl's books are so full of incident like James and the Giant Peach (laughs) starts with the kid's parents die he's taken to the mean aunt's house a magic man comes and gives him a bag full of dried alligator tongues a a peach swells to unusual size and it's full full of of, uh, intelligent insects They, they roll to the sea they capture a bunch of seagulls they go across the Atlantic Ocean they're attacked by cloud men they land in New York City uh, all of these things happen in James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory the same way what happens in Jan- Danny the Champion of the World uh, a kid uh, and his dad uh, catch some pheasants like that's it that's literally it it's so shocking to me to be so devoid of wild incident um,
0: but but do you know you know what 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 i get out of that book is I, Dahl put a lot of actual childhood instances in that book. Like he and a friend were actually caned in a classroom, and that was a very formative event in his life. So I kind of assumed that all this was kind of based more or less on his real life. But then I grew up and I learned Dahl's father died when he was very young, and he was left with a mother to to raise him. Danny the Champion of the World is a story about a son and a father who are alone in the world and who yeah. love each other more than anything else. And I just can't, you know, not see that as some sort of amazing wish fulfillment on Dahl's part. Mm-hmm.
2: I have such visceral memories of reading Danny the Champion of the World. Uh, for most books that I read when I was a kid, I remember what's in the book. But for that book... I know where I was in the living room wow. when I was reading it. And I can remember conversations I had while reading it. I remember the
3: swing set on which I finished Matilda for the first time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we should
1: mention, too, that the uh, the BFG, which was made into a movie not too long ago, is, if you didn't know, uh, based on... a. A, a passage in Danny the Champion of the World, where the dad tells the dad is famous for making up uh, wild stories to his son. That's what his son says is he's always got another story. And yeah, and and Danny the Champion of the World is narrated by the son when he's obviously. Older, if not grown up, it's unclear what time period the narrator is is, is living in, but it's later in his life and he's rec- recalling his dad. And one of the examples he gives is that his dad tells the story about the big friendly giant. And obviously that had enough of a uh, a catch that it got turned into an illustrated book and then later into... Uh, uh, a couple of movies, movie versions of it. So if if you've heard of the BFG, that's another spin out from the kind of wild imagination. That's your fan- fantasy element in Danny the Champion of the World, but it's just a story told by a dad to a son. It feels so so autobiographical that I I don't know how much of that is real and how much of that is not, but it feels so. There's so many things in Danny that feel like a real. Uh, a real story about a real kid and his relationship with his dad in a way that, as much as I love these other doll books, they don't feel real right they 're all heightened <laughs> sure. Danny is not does not feel
0: particularly heightened well the, what Danny has is it has um more characterization i feel it, uh, it it really tries to get around the 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 head uh, inside the heads of Danny and his father now the uh antagonists in that book is just as big an idiot and as awful as any other doll characters and dull loves to create horrific characters just so he can finish them off in a satisfying way <laughs> he he really does not care at all about uh, sympathizing with these characters he wants to make them as odious as he possibly can <laughs> Um, he'll kill
2: them off and then give you a three-page song about how much he hates television. <laughs> yeah, the uh the the uh
1: the guy in Danny the champion of the world who owns the land that they're poaching from. Um that that scene also struck me as being very much like a maybe 30s movie, uh, almost like a Marx Brothers movie where it's sort of like there's a there's a a puffed up fat cat who's going to get it, which is I mean, I guess that's an example of me understanding a little bit of a class, uh, a, a clash of uh, of people in different classes. Uh, but it is it is kind of delightful because, you know, pheasants fly into his car and ruin everything and he has to flee and he, he uh, everybody else. The police don't like him either. So they're not going to really enforce any of the laws that have been broken. Um uh it's it's pretty funny but he doesn't get crushed by a giant peach he just has his car wrecked and his uh weekend of uh hunting pheasants ruined but you know you gotta take your
2: victories where you can more than just that weekend i think
1: that could be i mean that was a lot of pheasants that just flew away <laughs> so who knows um what other doll what other doll should we talk about? Are there other things we haven't mentioned? Matilda, I haven't read Matilda. Uh it's one of the rare my, my so my wife is a children's librarian and she wanted to point out that one of the issues with doll is that he he is from an era where there are um certain things in his books that are not really that great when viewed through mm-hmm. a modern lens. Uh-huh. And, 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 and there there are um I, I think the example in Jane's the giant peach is um it, there's a reference to, I, w- I wouldn't, I'd rather be fried and eaten by a Mexican is a line in there by one yep. of the insects. Not so good. um But uh, the other issue is, too, is that most of his characters that are the viewpoint characters, the key characters are male uh, with the exception of Matilda. Matilda, which I haven't read is the one sort of like doll book. That's really about a girl instead of a boy. So Brian, you said you read Matilda, right?
3: Yeah, Matilda was my favorite as a kid, uh, simply because I could identify with the love of reading, and nothing else about the book, but still the love of reading, and (laughs) I appreciated that. Um, As much as you can tell Doll loves books, especially based on the Mike TV Oompa Loompa song that's like, oh, if you remove your TV, add some Uh, books and you'll be fine. Uh, (laughs) I... I loved that um, he really did celebrate reading and its virtues to the point where he gave a character that voraciously read from the age of three uh, magical powers for a little bit. And Matilda is one of the rare, again, I, I haven't read Danny and the Champion of the World, but given uh, things like James and the Giant Peach I, and uh, Chocolate Factory, I was amazed at how relatively tame the uh, novel uh, Matilda was compared to the movie where the entire time uh, Mara Wilson is able to Fly things around the room from the very beginning of the movie. And in the book, uh, she's able to, I think, move three things three times. And that was a testament to her brain power. So I really appreciated uh, a love of books from Dahl, which really does come through in all of his work.
2: I would like to praise Roald Dahl's use of words and rhythm. Oh, yeah. Like, th- take the first example that comes to mind. One of the great lines in the Gene Wilder movie, Violet, you're turning violet, Violet. That's right out of the <laughs> in book. The book. Yep. <laughs> it's so good. Um, at one point, he introduces something called strawberry-flavored chocolate-coated fudge, just so that a page later he can say that it has become Augustus-flavored chocolate-coated gloop, <laughs> which is such a great phrase. Like He throws out things like wangdoodles and wangers and they're just fun to say and to think. So there's a gleeful use of nonsense words that I just find very, very appealing
3: where i think it goes too far is in his songs and poems in the middle mm. of the books which <laughs> i know it has its fans you're all probably fans of them but to me they're just and what did we learn today kids it's like uh the david reese show what did we learn today bum 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 and you get a big long poem about everything that you just read and yeah it didn't need it i skip those i skip them in tolkien too yeah me too <laughs>
0: I think that's a a very English thing to do, though. It it reminds me most closely of the Alice in Wonderland books that they they would always the characters would always launch to a song. And there was pretty much a parody of Victorian moralizing. And I I always felt that way in in the uh, Charlie books, too, that the. The Oompa Loompas were supposedly going to give a moral lesson, but in many cases, they just kind of underscored the careless indifference of Wonka to people's suffering. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but when you write, they'll wonder what they'd ever seen in that ridiculous machine, that nauseating, foul and clean, repulsive television screen. I'm pretty sure he meant that one. I don't know that he was really <laughs> angry at kids who chewed gum. He really seems mad at television
3: well he uses that shorthand mostly in uh, chocolate factory but in a bunch of other books as well the shorthand of this person is fat this person watches tv this person's spoiled for a whole bunch of other different things that he's able to expunge on and expand on and i appreciate his use of um uh, those kinds of narrative devices to move the plot along but i would argue jason that those are the things that do not age well with modern eyes it's like th- every single book has some fat character who's only uh yes. who's only character is that they're fat?
1: They're fat and disgusting. Yeah, and the Uvalumpas, by the way, are um, the they are happy slaves. Very much colonialism so. for kids, and, and they're and, not slaves. They mention wages. Well, it, it sounds it sounds like they were originally depicted as such as well, which is pro- in the illustrations, which
0: is also they were. I, I had I had as a kid uh, the original Joseph Schindelman illustrations from the sixty-four book. They were (laughs) simply depicted as small Africans. Yeah. And it was very disturbing. My I remember my mom reading that and the color going out of her face when she got to that as she was reading it to (laughs) me and she was like unsure what to do next. The book at least the
2: printing I read just now says that their skin is rosy white.
0: Right, they changed that. They, okay, they, that's what I thought. They, they couldn't always There was, always have been there was there. a changed edition of this. This is kind of like <laughs> when if you get a if you get editions now of um, Doctor Doolittle, they've taken out all the really horrific things. But if you get your <laughs> <That's> hands <left. laughs> on a Doctor Doolittle from 1920, oh boy, you're in for a, a wild ride.
3: There's also the story that went around relatively recently that Charlie was originally supposed to be black, but at his publisher's behest, he changed it for Hmm. some reason. I I think the crux of the story was, why should he be black? Just make him white. And Dahl said, okay. I think think it was
1: his agent. And and yeah, the argument was basically like, people will just stumble over it and the story will be, why is he black? So let's just not make him black. Let's make him the default, which is a white boy. I do wonder if what would have happened, though, if he had depicted... I wonder if Dahl's inclination there was, well, we want the we want Charlie to be this noble, uh noble child who's from the worst possible uh life and then he comes into this and that if he had been depicted as a black boy from England, if that would have just made it like more horribly racist, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh that would have been something for them to edit out in later editions. But he he, you know, was advised to just make him a white character and so he did. Um, and that's, that's, yep, that's apparently the story.
2: Nobody reached Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator, which is good because they have left in all of the racist Chinese stuff. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, premier of China is named Chu On Dat, oh, just boy. so that the president could say, Chu On that, Chu On Dat, and he uh, talks with a lot it's of not much even, regret, That's please. hilarious. That's not even a good joke. On end, come on. Well, here, here's a good joke. Well, here's a joke about what you're about I still enjoy. It is very difficult to phone people in China, Mister President," said the Postmaster General. The country is so full of wings and wongs. Every time you wing, you get the wong number. Oh God! That, oh no! See, <laughs> yeah, nailed no, it. No, oh no! Yeah, but nobody reads Bullseye. it. Bullseye! So they haven't right.
1: needed to edit that and sanitize it and make it. No, he. You know, I, I, this is this is one of the interesting things with any any writer from well, not any writer, but many writers from uh, this era is that uh, yeah, he's he's. I, I've read a few blog posts and I know this is discussed in library circles. Like um, these are beloved books and yet there's stuff in them that's like, Oh, that's not, no, that's not so, gr- not so great. And in James and the giant peach, there's less of that. So I notice it less, but it does uh, it, it it is a concern. And there's a question of like, do you, do you change this work in order to make it continue to be read um, by, you know, in modern standards? Cause modern standards are different than they were in in that area where it was accepted that this stuff would get published and i don't know i mean obviously whoever's in control of the estate is like no we're going to make changes in order to sell more copies of books i think which is probably the right thing to do except for the great glass elevator nobody cares so
0: we won't we won't change that Dahl himself approved the changes for the uh Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and rather quickly they I think that the that was deemed unacceptable rather rather soon after the original edition was published. Dahl is a is a crazy character the more you learn about him. He had uh he gave this this really nasty interview once where he spouted the, just the most horrible anti Semitic stuff. Right. But then later he he and his friends were always saying like oh he's not anti-semitic he's got lots of jewish friends he was just you know sure. he likes to get a rise out of people and he some came, of his I best think, friends yep. <laughs> exactly i think that that for that generation the the expectations for being racist or being bigoted were that you were openly antagonistic that you were going to actively seek to harm someone but just saying bad things about someone someone based on their race. That's okay. Everybody does it's that. It's kind of,
2: yeah. uh, right. One of my favorite Roald Dahl things is actually not Roald Dahl himself. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins used to have a podcast called the Dead Authors mm-hmm. Podcast, <laughs> where he would interview people pretending to be various dead authors, and those people would have done varying amounts of research. Like uh, Andy Daly did, L. Ron Hubbard did all the research in the world. Or you could get somebody doing Robert Benchley who didn't do any research, which kind of made me mad. So, one time, Ben Schwartz, who played uh, John Ralphio on Parks and Rec, was there as Roald Dahl because he loved the BFG. And you go through a whole episode and Ben Schwartz is, you know, making stuff up and having a good time. Then right at the end, somebody asks about that anti-Semitic interview. And you can hear Ben Schwartz having to stay in character as Roald Dahl while discovering that one of his favorite authors was a bit anti-Semitic, and it is fun to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) I I listen listen to 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 it a bunch. It's great. (laughs) I listened to it just before
3: the show, and it is a... uh, It's a fun time.
1: (laughs) By the way... I enjoy the songs in James and the Giant Peach. I'm just going to put it okay. out there. And my favorite Do you line, read all of them every time? My, uh, my favorite line, yes, I do. And when I read it to my okay. kids, I got to invent, um, invent music to go with them, too, because they're songs. Um, my favorite line, which I'll read to you now, is this, which is, I crave the tasty tentacles of octopi for tea. I like hot dogs. I love hot frogs. And surely you'll agree. A plate of soil with engine oils. A super recipe. Love it, love it, hot frogs. I don't know what those are, but they sound terrible. That's the centipede.
0: They used a lot of those lines in the song in uh, in the movie that that, that you dislike, that so, I dislike so much. But, I, I don't know, but they they actually use the, those lyrics
3: the way that doll writes uh makes me really want a hall holbrook character to go around and kind of do a one man roald doll show reading something like uh, charlie and the chocolate factory or james and the giant peach because they're very very short and can probably be done in less than 2 hours and i really appreciate the way it's written and there's things like oh this is james henry Chatter, pleasure to meet you he's charmed and little moments like that that make you feel like this is the perfect princess bride book to rate for a grandfather to read to his uh, grandson
1: well let me tell you the um The... Having read these to my kids, the end of James and the Giant Peach, that last chapter, which is all about he's grown up and he lives in the peach pit in the middle of Central Park, and he invites other children in, uh, and and uh, obviously cares about like children being taken care of like he wasn't taken care of, and that that chapter that was the hardest thing I maybe ever have done in my life was trying to get oh. to get through that chapter without <laughs> without being unable to speak due to the, due to the tears oh, no, just. James. <laughs> We're just so He hard. lives in the peach pit It's so sweet He lives in the peach pit In New York City And with a little And the children come to see him And now he's grown up And he takes care of the children
3: And, the, and uh, he decided
1: to write a book And you know what? You is, just
3: finished reading it This Boom, is that book meta.
1: Which I think he did again. <laughs>
3: did he he did that in the BFG. Yes, yeah,
1: that's right. It's like that's a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna call that back again. What? Uh, so what about the what about the film adaptations? I already told you that I don't particularly like Henry Selick's uh, stop motion James cr- and the Giant Peach, <laughs> but I've only seen it the once, and I just remember being disappointed, so I didn't watch it again. I'm sorry to tell you this, Jason.
2: You are wrong. That movie is a delight right. from start to finish. It is excellent. It. Yes,
1: I should revisit it. No, I, I it's one of those cases where I know I'm not judging it fairly. I know it. Yeah. Because I spent, uh, because I read the book like eighty times. I'm not sure I can get outside of, of that. But I could try again. It's good to know that it's good. I'm
0: glad. I think it's one of the the dull. Adaptations that tries really hard to remain true to the feel of the book there there are inventions that they they put in there are editions they put in they don 't do the cloud men uh, I guess they figured that was too difficult so or too. Too, too, strange scary. It's too scary. Too scary. Whatever. Well, the rhino terrified me <laughs> but,
3: when I first saw this movie. It's horrific. If there were cloud men <laughs> Can cloud in that movie, they, people, like,
1: people would have fled the theaters, but because the cloud <laughs> men are so scary. So I am glad they saved people from the terrifying uh, fear of clouds that I had. Is what I am saying. But
0: it, it retains an awful lot of the dialogue from the book, and it feels like a dull story. It, it, it. it I think that as 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 much as people love the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka that is a very different uh that, that just feels very different than the book feels to me it feels very much like a, a crazy 1970s film, and that's not a bad thing. I think that's one of the things that we enjoy about it. And everyone who that that film, you know, lives and dies on Wilder's performance. Uh, it certainly does not live and die on Cheer Up Charlie. Um, <laughs> yeah. But,
2: yeah, but changing the title was on purpose and the right thing to do. This is a yes. Willy Wonka movie, yeah. not a Charlie movie.
0: The 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 only other one that I thought was a good there was a good adaptation of Danny the Champion of the World that starred um Jeremy Irons as the father and his son his actual son played danny i think they ran that on the disney channel back in the 80s and it's very hard to find but it 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 was a pretty good adaptation
3: i'm gonna sing the praises of the danny devito matilda movie uh because even though they change up the plot a whole bunch and make matilda's uh, mental powers a lot more extreme uh than in the book i think all of the performances are pitch perfect especially trunchbull especially matilda and especially uh her parents so So, to me, all of these film adaptations, they were the first doll things I had seen. I saw Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I saw Matilda, and I saw James and the Giant Peach all around the same time in my life, and... I then later went back and read the books, and I said, "Oh, yeah, no, these are these are kids' books. These are, you know, okay." And I appreciate that a lot of those and the ones I love, especially the film adaptations that I love, can take the best parts of Dahl, the uh, the plots, the like story arc ideas, and the characters and the dialogue, of course, and turn them into something a lot more. I I, I don't want to say modern because that's not what I'm going for because a lot of them are you know old fashioned, but. The they turn them into much more watchable movies than I would argue the books are enjoyable books. Not that I don't like them, but I think the movies are better movies
2: than the books are books. I want to say something nice about the Johnny Depp Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I was, was going to ask if anybody had anything. All right. I got one thing to say. I haven't seen it. Um, It's not as good as the Gene Wilder one, obviously, but while Gene Wilder is clearly always in charge and is a mysterious malicious puppet master figure you're not as convinced that johnny depp's willy wonka is doing all this on purpose there's kind of an element of him being out of control that i like that tone having said that the best rolled doll movie is fantastic mr fox fight me yeah
3: oh how did i forget that was him wow yes you're right Yeah, that... that Okay,
1: so, I mean, this is what I was going to go. I was going to go through all the uh, Roald Dahl uh, Dahl movies. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox is great. I I don't know. I I can't separate Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from my childhood. That is a movie that was on in the days, kids... Pull up a chair, Brian. uh, In the days before there was home video on demand, you just watched what was on television. And boy, (laughs) that movie was on television all the time. And I would watch it every time. And... Uh, and so I have great, um, a great fondness for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It is super weird, but I, you know, I like the horrible deaths of all of or, or not deaths, the horrible things that happen to all of the kids who misbehave in the factory. And Gene Wilder part is amazing. And uh, those Oompa Loompa songs are catchy.
2: Sure, it's great when it gets to the factory. It takes a long time to get to the factory. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of golden ticket uh, business that happens there's a song that. about the
1: golden ticket and that slows the movie way down true it's true um but fantastic mr fox yeah so that what an unexpected uh, roald dahl adaptation a, a uh a stop motion another stop motion adaptation uh directed by wes anderson starring george clooney <laughs> and it's uh it's great it is a that is a that is my favorite wes anderson movie and i know it's that's like
2: saying the BFG is your favorite Steven Spielberg movie. It probably doesn't count. <laughs> no, I, but I think it's super recognizable as Wes Anderson, which I think is amazing that he has such a clear visual style that even in stop motion, you can look at any frame of that movie and go, oh, I know who directed this movie
3: it's his only adaptation and it's his only animated movie as of yet his next movie is going to be animated as well and yet you still know it's Wes Anderson. It's several degrees removed from Wes Anderson telling Jason Schwartzman what to do but it's still incredible.
0: <laughs> well I think of that film as an adaptation of Fantastic Mr. Fox the way I think of adaptation to being an adaptation of The <laughs> Thief because oh, Wes Anderson movie. basically creates a whole second half to that movie that is his own invention that has nothing to do with the actual plot of the the book. There's nothing wrong with that. The the original Fantastic Mr. Fox is such a slight book. It's so, it's about the shortest thing that Dahl ever wrote except for maybe the Twits. Uh, and it's, it's you know, it's fine, but it's, I, I when they made it into a movie, I was thinking, like, how are they going to make this into a movie? This is like a 15-minute short, and the answer is they made that 15-minute short, and then they just kept on going. But you never
2: see the seams. Like, it all feels yeah. as one piece.
0: Yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox
1: has the uh, uh, the Italian job ending. The the book does, which is like right. and they're waiting for him to come out of the hole. As far as I know, they're still waiting there. Goodbye everybody, right? Which is the in the, <laughs> right. in, in the Michael Caine Italian job where they're per, they're per, like a uh, perch on the edge of a cliff and it's like, "Well, anybody have any ideas?" The end. Yep. Goodbye. And I've reached my word count, so the end. <laughs> yeah. Put in the mail and, and publish. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but good, really good movie. Really good movie. Um, I think it's hard to imagine that um, Roald Dahl is not going to be remembered most for for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, though. That seems to be the, as much as I love James and the Giant Peach, and as much as some of the other books are really remarkable, that seems to be the one, because of the Gene Wilder movie, maybe, but that seems to be the one that everybody's going to remember, and not the sequel, Charlie and the Great glass elevator which has a space hotel and a- weird aliens and stuff and although i didn't love that book um i read it several times because and i think it helped kind of kindle my fascination with sort of science fictional elements i was really excited that the sequel to charlie and the chocolate factory was in space because how how is that possible but that i mean that's roald dahl man he he had a really strange imagination and would go to weird places with his with his books for sure
3: He's going to be remembered for uh, not just Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but also all of the things that have spun off from it, like the archetype of the Golden Ticket and like the factory tour and uh, the picking people off. I f- I see people reference uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory so much for uh, for picking characters off as it goes. Oh, there's a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That, to me, is what's going to survive Roald Dahl.
2: Yeah, like the Futurama episode that just did that, but with in space and a soda factory. <laughs> oh, so and uh, the great class worms. elevator.
1: The slurm factory. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Also, every time somebody is crushed by a giant piece of fruit, they're going to be like, hey, it's just like Roald Dahl.
0: I think there's, a, there's another very important legacy of Roald Dahl to young readers, which is at some point after being a child and reading Roald Dahl's uh, children's books, you will somewhere in a dark alley somewhere hear that he wrote books for uh, grownups ups and you will go off and you will find them. And they will completely destroy your every conception you have that we live in a good universe because (laughs) dolls adult stories are mean and they are weird and they are like everything about his children's books. He has, he has no compunction about killing people off in gruesome and fascinating ways. And they are also full of icky sex of the kind of um, 1950s, 1960s British comedic uh, sex farce, uh, writing that y- you might expect. And uh, I think they're, they're, they're wonderful to, uh, to uh, it's a wonderful threshold to cross over at a certain point in your life to realize it's sort of like when you're a kid reading Judy Bloom and then someday reading Wifey.
2: I was going to use Shel Silverstein as the example. <laughs> yes. Because, you know, I grew up with Where the Sidewalk Ends and Light in the Attic. And oh, these are fun, you know, kind of doggerel, but really fun children's. Poems, And then you discover that he spent decades writing for Playboy with exactly the same poetic style, but now it's all about sex and drugs.
3: (laughs) My counterpoint to you, John, is uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory only works because Willy Wonka insists time and time again that nobody's going to die. (laughs) <laughs> Otherwise, that book is also very gruesome, and also very weird, and also very mean, and there, there's no wiki sex, but there's still all the things there that I'm sure... I, I haven't read right any of his adult books, parents. but...
1: <laughs> oh, see, I was going to say, tell that to the Oompa Loompas, but either way, uh, I, I, I like the idea that John, John's got this image now of the dark alley that beckons you over to the other side. Is that, is that alley between the children's section and the adult section in the library? Is that where that alley is?
0: Yes, and there's there's a bald man with a sack. Oh, no! he's gonna hand, hand, hand the book Hello, my dear boy, box. don't spill it <laughs> don't spill the uh
1: the alligator tongues or you're in you're in, in big trouble
3: that, and let the moon that's, do the
1: rest well i i think um i think doll also probably has a legacy in the sense that um if you're a children's author and i think uh, again i talk about this with my wife all the time because this is her job is children's and young adult and um I think if you're a children's author, he is one of the touchstones, and I think he gives you license, maybe, to push yourself as a children's author to say, I can pu- I can push this a little more. It can be darker. It can be weirder. And, you know, children's stories that are dark and weird goes back, you know, The Brothers Grimm, you know, there are lots of examples, but I do think that... that people are always sort of shocked that there's darkness and weirdness in children's uh, literature and it's always been there and I think it always should be there because I think that's what makes kids glom onto this stuff is that it is strange and, and a little bit dark and that's what makes it great like I really like how Awful Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker get there, come up, and die being crushed by a giant peach that rolls over them. And I think maybe Doll's work is is something that uh, that modern writers uh, of children's literature do keep in mind as a you know he could do it, so can I kind of thing. I think I'd like to think
2: there's a moment right towards the end of. Uh, chocolate factory right before the tv room where they get in the elevator and it flies sideways and you see that underneath the chocolate factory there's volcanoes and lakes and villages and basically an entire D dungeon that they just <laughs> zoom past and one of the things that i think i like the most about chocolate factory is that it's full of things that they just refuse to expand on like, all of those signs that are clearly dumb jokes that I think Willy Wonka just put up there the day before the tour started. Refusing to say, like, how did that village, how does that village survive? Doesn't matter. Zoom, we're done. I don't have to explain any of this. Ooh, Loompa where's that? No one cares. Ha 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 ha. It's nowhere now. The snozzwangers took it over. Ooh. We make reference all the
1: time to the fact that the button that is used on the elevator is up and out. Which is just such a great <laughs> moment of taking something mundane, which is an elevator, and saying, no, this this one doesn't just go to the top. It goes up and out
2: into the air. It's like, what? All the time, up and out. And then he insists on making another hole in the roof to get back in. He never explains that either.
1: It's really... Two is better than it's one. It's really inefficient. So uh, before we go, I wanted to ask, if we were to recommend that somebody read or read to their children or have their children read a rolled doll book or two what would the recommendations be today knowing what we know having experienced what we experienced do you have a particular book or or books that you would say this is the one you should you you should have your uh, you should read this or your your kids should read this john what do you
0: think well if they're very young i would say fantastic mr fox because it's short and it introduces uh you to the kind of sensibility that Dahl has. If they're older than, say, six, I would, I would do Chocolate Factory or Danny the Ch- Danny the Champion of the World. I would wait till after. I think maybe till they're ten.
3: Hmm. Brian, to me, Roald Dahl is magical realism and societal assumptions. And to me, the book that synthesizes the two of those, the best, not just because it's my personal favorite, but probably because it is my personal favorite, Matilda, uh, is what I would recommend to most people, simply because it has the most meat on its bones in terms of uh, structure and character development. Um, there's also the moment you mentioned, you know, modern children reading these books a little while ago, Jason. And as I was reading it today, um, you know, it, it, Matilda takes place in England, but the American movie, takes place in America, and there's all the Americanisms and Britishisms that come with that. And I was reading through Matilda, and uh, they offhandedly mentioned, oh yeah, I saw the Trunchbull in prayers, but beside that, nothing else. I thought, prayers? Wait, that that is a part of everyday life enough that they don't mention that this is a school where people take regular breaks for prayers? And I love those kinds of moments where you think, okay, yeah, it could be the product of its time, but it could also be like an interesting discussion. This this is baby's first capitalism for uh, if, if you give it to... A young child. So, I would recommend Matilda uh, for
2: most little kids, especially to foster a love of reading, like it did for me. Brian, I want to recommend books to you so you understand the uh, British boarding school system. It is fascinating to me. Is that a separate piece? Please don't tell me to read a separate piece again. No. Okay, good. Separate piece was in New England, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, okay. No, these are... What I'm thinking of, are, and Matilda is kind of in this genre, but starting with Tom Brown's school days and going straight to Harry Potter, Harry Potter is just one of these books, but with magic in them. And yeah, <laughs> all they do is study Latin, go to prayers, and play rugby. Sounds pretty good. That is the entire boarding school experience, as far as I can know. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Roald Dahl, I'm not going to recommend a thing for children. I think children should uh, go off recommendations and do whatever they want. Um, Okay. (laughs) I'm going to recommend... I don't know. Uh, This is just an excuse to recommend a story that we haven't mentioned, which is my favorite rolled doll thing. It's called The Swan, and I think you can find it online if you search hard enough. It is the story of two stupid, brutal bully kids bullying a young, sensitive kid, and it gets... Very gruesome, very frightening, and then right at the end, to me, very magical. Hmm. I don't want to say anything more than that, just the story, The Swan by Roald Dahl, I find lovely and
3: also horrifying. To you, it gets magical. Are you suggesting a sort of subjective magic?
2: Oh no, it's it's clearly magical. Okay, good. (laughs) Some people may not find the moment of magic at the end justifies the grotesqueries that have led to it. I do. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna once again recommend James and the Giant Peach
1: because I like that it's it is so completely bizarre with talking insects and a flying peach and all of that and parent death and evil ant death and a creepy guy with a paper bag. All of that is in there. What more what more do you want from a children's book than all of those things? <laughs> I say.
2: If that's all you want, you're done in the first ten pages yeah. I think. Pretty,
1: pretty solid. You know, talking animals, songs boots boot changing take off the boots put the boots back on all that stuff but i think uh i i think his his work is a lot of fun and still uh still worth reading although always as a parent especially if you're reading to your kids yeah you you may engage your inner editor at points and be like yeah maybe not it's gonna say that part you know it's, it's <laughs> there's no doubt about it all right anything we haven't talked about that you want to mention before we go
0: I was just looking at the Wikipedia page here, and I wanted to point out that as much as Dull claims to hate television in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he actually wrote a series that ran in 1961 called Way Out, and he was the host on that series. That was an anthology series of Twilight Zone-type stories. So. Just another bit of dull hypocrisy. Yeah. Well, you know, low and dull. This is my show. Don't give me an. He hates, he hates TV, but
1: likes the paycheck. I think maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's there's the world always has some technology in it that people think is rotting, routing the brains of children. Right. There's always something. So it was TV for him. All right. Well, we're going to, I think, wrap it up here. But uh, yeah, I hope that maybe this has uh, reminded you of some favorites from childhood. And if not, maybe there's something to uh, revisit. I enjoyed reading Danny the Champion of the World. And let me tell you, it took me like an hour, <laughs> two hours. It's not; th- These are not huge books for the most part either, but they're they're fun. Um, I'd like to thank my guests for talking about Roald Dahl with us. Uh, very pleasant guests. I understand if Roald Dahl were here, he might have not been as pleasant, but he's not here. And so I thank my pleasant guest, Brian Hamilton. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Uh, Monty Ashley, I love hot frogs. <laughs> you are one of us now. Didn't you know that? You're part of the crew. And <laughs> uh, John McCoy, thank you very much.
0: Well, I hope you find your peach pit somewhere.
2: <laughs> oh! it's in Beverly Hills, isn't it?
1: And thanks to everybody out there for listening. Um, check the back of your podcast to see if you got the golden ticket. We'll see you next time.